Hey, welcome to You Had Me at Black. I'm Martina Abrahams. This week's story is about a young man who, despite graduating from a prestigious college and traveling the world, couldn't shake the conditioning of his hometown. But before we get into his story, I have an update on our next kickback. We are coming to Houston, Texas on Saturday, December 2nd. Now, our kickbacks are a chance for you to come and experience a live recording of our podcast and just hang out with beautiful Black people. Tickets go on sale next Friday, November 11th, and you can join our email list at youhadmeatblack.com for updates and first dibs. Now, let's get into this week's story. Here's what happened. I want you to breathe all this in. You're listening to You Had Me at Black. Black. Right in the heart of the city. Black. Man, listen, man. Black, black. (laughs) This is You Had Me at Black, and we live, baby. I'm from East Oakland. Um, I moved there when I was about nine years old from San Lorenzo. You know, the men around me were most definitely living a faster life than I think most individuals in our society. Um, You know, brothers just high all the time. Um, Always, you know, never being with just one woman or doing right by the woman they're with. Oftentimes not, you know, reaching their potential as fathers, as well as just, you know, just a lot of violence, you know, solving things with, with gunplay over the most minuscule issues. You know, it seemed like every issue came down to, you know, to somebody getting shot at. And so, you know, at the time, that those things were normalized for me. I didn't, you know, those things were not out of the ordinary. In fact, I thought that that's the way it was supposed to be. Um, so uh, one day I'm leaving football practice. Actually, I'm with my uncle, and he sees his old continuation um, high school teacher. Um, and he had a speech and debate team there. It's called Forensics. Um, so I'm leaving football practice. Um, they run into each other. They start talking, and he's like, hey, you need to put my nephew in your class. Put him in your program. And so, you know, from from that point on, I was in the program. So I joined the team, and it was something totally different that I, I actually didn't even know that this activity existed. And I, you know, initially I was really just kind of, uh, you know, I, I didn't I didn't feel strongly about it either way. You know, I wanted to be like my dad, who was in and out of my life. I wanted to be like my uncle, who would slide up in an old school cutlass, you know, with a you know with a different female every time I seen him. You know, I wanted to be like the brothers on the block, who, you know. It looked like they were living it up, you know, living that fast life. That's what, it, you know, that's what attracted me. Because, you know, at that age, when you don't really understand what manhood is and what, you know, being a good human is, those things are, you know, are incredibly appealing. So those are the, you know, if I, I think that, if, you know, if I had my choice, I would have preferred to do those things. However, you know, again, just because I had all these experiences on the forensics team, I knew that that wasn't the best way to live. As I started to do it, I started to realize I had a passion for it. Um, And I don't do that, but I was really good at it. Um, I was able to win a national championship in 2003 in dramatic interpretation. Um, It was in Atlanta at the uh, Horizon Sanctuary. And um, right after that, my speech coach took me to a college interview at a black college down there. Uh, When I got in on the spot, and while there, I was able to have a lot of success, uh, kept my grades tight, um, had an opportunity to study abroad at Oxford University, graduated, and then came right back home to Oakland. Um, and with that time, I really just kind of jumped 
right back into the same things, you know, a lot of uh, the brothers in my neighborhood was doing. So I linked up with my family members and my friends and, you know, was just doing the exact opposite of what I had been doing for the past four or five years. Just high all day, you know, even though I was with my daughter's mother, wasn't even close to faithful. You know, we also had a lot of issues with brothers from different spots in Oakland. So I'm not going to get into the specifics, but there was, you know, there was some gunplay involved. And so that kind of brings me to, you know, the night of this uh, incident. In, in East Oakland, there's a motorcycle set. You know, you got breaking bread, you got wicked wheels, saddle tramps. Um, you know, you got a lot of, uh, you know, on East 14th and deep East Oakland, there's a lot of motorcycle clubs and it's called the set. Um, and so breaking bread is a motorcycle club. It's actually a motorcycle slash car club. And they have the really big annual party that they have every year. And this year it was at the Moose Lounge uh, right off Hagenberger. You got cats coming from all over the Bay, even outside of California to come to this party. Um, and, for, and for the events they have during this time. And so we uh, and so we get we get to the uh, to the party, probably like around 12, something like that is it's myself, my little brother and another childhood friend. My little brother is an individual who is uh, someone that I've never met anyone like. Um, just incredibly intelligent. I mean, the, the brother's brilliant, but for whatever reason, chose to live a different lifestyle. You know, he's most definitely, he's a real life pimp, like real life pimp. Um, and then my other buddy that was with us, you know, he's just he's kind of an average brother from East Oakland trying to make it, you know, most definitely doing all the things everybody else is doing, but, you know, essentially just trying to make it, trying to make it happen. So we get to the annual, probably like around 12 o'clock. It's nothing but love, all family, you know, people I grew up with from my neighborhood, people that I've been hanging out with. And, you know, we having a good time. A lot of weed, a lot of drink. Some other substances I won't necessarily mention, but, you know, we're having a good time. We leave probably about three, um, and we had parked in the uh, Taco Bell parking lot, which is probably about three or four blocks down the street. And uh, so we're walking there. We're still parking lot pimping. We're still, you know, hollering at females, doing our thing, kicking it, stopping, dancing. You know, for those of you that are not from the Bay, you know, we do a lot in the parking lot. We do a lot everywhere. So, you know, cars are stopping. We're seeing brothers giving it up, stopping the car. You know what I'm saying? Gas breaking and, you know, hopping out the car and goes riding. And, you know, we're doing all that. Um, so we finally get to the Taco Bell and we're kicking back. Everybody's kind of leaving. And then, so my little brother runs into one of his, uh, you know, one of the females he used to deal with. They hop in the car. Um, they're messing around in the car doing whatever they're doing. And I'm outside with, my, uh, with you know, with my other partner. We outside smoking. So my my stepbrother slides up and he says that, uh, you know, there's some brothers coming your way. They're a little bit down the street. They're about, you know, two or three blocks down the street, but they got ski masks on and they're coming, you know, in this direction. At least it looks like they're coming in this direction. Now, at this point, you know, it's late. We have been doing a lot that day. Most definitely past inebriated, you know, not thinking straight. Also, incredibly confident, more confident than we should be. Um, so he's like, you know, they're coming this way. And we're like, all right, man, we good. We're going to cut in a minute anyway. So, you know, appreciate it, though. So he cuts. And, um, you know, just, just to give a little more context to the situation. So at the time, as I mentioned, you know, we had problems with, you know, a few different groups of brothers in East Oakland. 
for different reasons. All of it, you know, looking back is ridiculous. You know, there's no reason we should have been having these type of issues. However, we did. And that's just what time it was. And we realized, you know, we knew what the, you know, what the consequences of having problems with these brothers was. And we wasn't worried about it. Um, and not only that, but when he told us that they were coming, we also knew that we had what we needed to protect ourselves. So we wasn't necessarily worried about it. So he leaves. And about, I want to say, two or three minutes later, I hear, blah, 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 blah. So uh, me and my buddy that was outside the car, we hit the ground. You know, that thing we needed to protect ourselves, we left in the car. It was under the seat. So we didn't have access to it at the time. My brother was in the car, but he was in the back seat with his girl. So we was we were just really slipping. You know, it's that simple. So we hit the ground. I hear blah, 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 blah. You know what I'm saying? About four or five more shots. And then I look up and I see uh, I see that the uh, the barrel's cocked back. You know, and if you know anything about guns, you know, once that barrel's cocked back and stays back, you know, there's no more bullets. So um, once we see that barrel cocked back, or I see the barrel cocked back, I get up and the dude with the mask on, he take off. But as I get up, I'm running. I'm running in the opposite direction because I remember my brother said it was a couple of them, not just one. And, you know, oftentimes when you, you know, if you understand how this thing goes, you know, you if it's, it's a little more strategic when somebody's trying to take you out. You know, what I expected was that that wasn't the end of the shots. So I get up and I run in the other direction. And I noticed that my buddy, you know, my folks, he didn't get up with me. So um, I run back. I see that he shot, he got hit in the leg and in his thigh. My brother hops out the car, you know, we look around, make sure nobody else is coming and that that was the extent of it. And um, we pick up my my, uh, my partner and we put him in the car. Now he starts bleeding real bad, you know, so we, we hop in the car and, you know, we high speed it, you know, we go blast into Highland. Highland is the uh, kind of local kind of public hospital that everybody goes to when they get shot or something like that. Um, and we're about 10, 15 minutes from Highland. So uh, we hop in the car, man, we running red lights, you know, um, swerving in and out of lanes, um, doing what we need to do to get there. You know, anyone who's been in kind of like, a, you know, one of those hectic situations, you're really going autopilot. Um, and you almost, you know, sometimes you kind of have this uh, outer body experience. This has happened to me a couple of times where it's almost like you're watching it happen. You're not even in it. You're watching it like it's a movie. Um, and so I don't remember being scared. I don't remember, you know, being angry. I don't remember. I just remember reacting. But we finally get there, um, and pick him up. Man, he's just everything bloody, shirt bloody. Take him to the uh, emergency room. Um, it's, man, so much blood. We slipping in it. You know what I'm saying? Slipping, trying to pick him up and, and carry him. And when we get there, you know, the uh, the nurses or the receptionists, man, they were just incredibly uh, just nonchalant about it. Which was, you know, which was, you know, real frustrating for us because this thing, you know, this was a traumatic situation. It was, you know, it's tragic. And for you, you know, to be in a situation or these nurses to be in a situation where, you know, they're acting like it's another day or like I'm asking them for some ice cream or something was just, you know, it was frustrating. So, you know, we started losing it on the nurses. We started going real bad on them. We banging on the desk. It actually looked, I don't know if any, you know, if you've seen um, Minutes to Society, but it looked just like that scene off Minutes to Society when, um, Man, I can't remember the dude's name, but he gets hit. They take him into the hospital and they banging on it. The same, man, same exact thing. 
So finally they bring out the, uh, the you know, the stretcher or the bed. Doctors come out, they pick him up, take him on a stretcher. He was in the hospital for just a, a day or two, actually. Um, they took one of the bullets out, one they couldn't get to. Um, and he was fine. He was, walk- he was back walking around like, like it never happened, maybe like a week later. I didn't sleep that night. It was already like three or four in the morning. So we just we just stayed up. You know, I realized that I needed to, uh, you know, I needed to do something different. And, you know, honestly, that wasn't the first time that I'd been in a situation like that. But it was something about this time that really kind of woke me up. And I think it had a lot to do with the fact that around this time I had got full custody of my daughter. Just understanding that if something happened to me, you know, there wouldn't be anyone to take care of my daughter or the person who was going to take care of her. I didn't want them to take care of her. So the next morning, um, I went and applied for my teaching credential. Also applied for a master's in school psychology out of SF State. I got into both programs, you know, just because on paper, I was still tight. You know, I still had all these experiences. I still had, you know, this education background and, you know, I traveled the world and, and done all those things. So, you know, my resume was tight. Um, I opted to go with the teaching credential program because it would allow me to work and take care of my daughter. And I've been teaching ever since. I'm nowhere near that person anymore. And I think, you know, that night had a lot to do with it for sure. But as I, as I, as I think about it, you know, and just, you know, realizing that I should have never been in that situation in the first place. I should not have been living the way I was living. And when I ask myself why, why after having all these, you know, just amazing experiences and, and really being someone who, you know, was, was woke and, and enlightened in a lot of ways, why come back and, and live in that way, live, you know what I'm saying, live that type of life. If it was this tough for me, after having all these positive experiences to break this programming, how hard is it for the brother who, who doesn't have that, who doesn't have those experiences um, and who doesn't have that opportunity to apply for your master's and a, and a teaching credential the next morning? You know, I was really fortunate that I, you know, had this way out because of all the work I had done uh, prior. But what if I did it? You know, I wouldn't have a choice but to really just kind of continue living that same lifestyle, continue to be programmed. You know, that conditioning runs deep. It runs incredibly deep. This episode was produced by Jody Williams. Music and scoring by Charlie Corpening. This episode was mixed and mastered by Miles Dotson. Thanks for listening to You Had Me at Black. If you want to hear more stories like this one, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This is season four of You Had Me at Black.